0: Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com/notseenradio. That's P A T R E O N.com/notseenradio. Thank you. This season of Things Not Seen is sponsored in part by Loyola University's Institute for Pastoral Studies. Find out more at luc.edu/ips. From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. On today's show, can the wisdom of a medieval monk help us think through ways to care for the environment in the 21st century, Our guest, the Franciscan friar, Father Dan Horan, says yes. We talk about this and more when we discuss his new book, All God's Creatures. Stay tuned. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Father Dan Haran. He's a Franciscan friar of Holy Name Province in New York, and he's an assistant professor of systematic theology and spirituality at Catholic Theological Union here in Chicago. Father Horan is the author of 12 books, including the award-winning 2014 book, The Franciscan Heart of Thomas Merton, a new look at the spiritual influence on his life, thought, and writing. In addition to his wide record of publications, Father Horan is a sought-after speaker and lecturer and an avid runner. He's also my friend, and I should mention that he and I co-host the Francis Effect podcast, which looks at politics and current events through a lens of Catholic faith. Today, we're discussing his recent book, All God's Creatures, A Theology of Creation. Father Dan Horan, welcome to Things Not Seen.
1: Dr. David Dalt, great to be with you.
0: (laughs) I just want to start out by saying that this book is a tour de force. I read through it and was just amazed at the way in which you have brought together so many important pieces for our present political conversations and our present environmental and ecological conversations. But I want to start out by just talking about the structure of the book. First of all, you look at the two major models for, I guess we could call it the place of humanity in creation. Uh, One is the dominionist model, and one is the stewardship model. From there, you critique those two models, and then you begin to bring in Scriptural and theological and Franciscan resources to begin to imagine a different sort of model. And that's, and we should mention that you're a Franciscan friar, and so this is part of your tradition. But then at the end of the book, the third part, you really give a constructive view, a, a kind of way of moving forward theologically that would allow us to rethink the major problems. And one of the things that you say towards the end is that it's not enough to just rehabilitate dominion and stewardship. We must actually think of a new way of going forward with these questions for the future. But in order to kind of get into this, let's just start with those first two ideas, dominion and stewardship. What are they? And as we learn about what they are. Let's start to also talk about what's wrong with them.
1: Well, thank you, first of all, for having me and for uh, your kind opening words uh, about the book. I'm I'm grateful for the readership and I'm grateful to be able to talk about it to your audience. Yeah. So dominion and stewardship are, are two of the three, what I would call archetypal ways of conceiving, not just of creation, quote unquote, or the environment, quote unquote, or nature, quote unquote, but humanity's place within creation and its relationship to it. So the first category called dominion is something that is taken from Genesis 1. So listeners may be familiar with this passage near the end of the first chapter of Genesis where humanity after the sixth day is is given, quote, dominion over the rest of creation and told to subdue it, you know, to be fruitful and multiply, et cetera, et cetera.
0: Well, and for our listeners who are unfamiliar, the passage in Genesis 128 says, God blessed them and God said to them, be fertile and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish and the sea, the birds of the air and all the living things that crawl on the earth. But you suggest in the book that that might even be not quite the best translation of that. And and
1: so let's talk about that. Like how how would this be better rendered out of its original language? So part of the problem is well there are, there are a number of problems actually around this text. One is that dominion itself can be interpreted. It has a, a polyvalence to it. You can approach it from a lot of different angles. And interpretively, there is the possibility of rehabilitation. And as you mentioned earlier, there are theologians and scriptural exegetes who have proposed that as an alternative. Because, well, it's right there in the text. We have this word, why not run with it? One of the major problems, though, is that historically, it's been interpreted such that it's, it's dominion as domination. Like ownership. Ownership, exactly. And you we see that with subdue in the in the same way that you would see subduing applied to, for instance, chattel slavery. You know when you talk about subduing a population when we've we kind of affiliate sub, subduing with you know genocide and these sorts of things. This idea of control of, of domination of ownership, as you put it, all of these things kind of come together, and we see that play out. It develops over time through more than really two thousand years of interpretation of this of this text, and it becomes particularly present theologically and practically in the Renaissance period, at the time of the Western Enlightenment, um, and then especially with the rise of the Industrial Revolution, where all of a sudden we see human beings, particularly those who are engaged in a kind of capital enterprise, using kind of in a proof texting way, Genesis 1, to justify the rampant, I don't know how to say, subjugation of the non-human natural world. So we see, you know, just insane amounts of pollution of waterways. We see the smoke towers. We see chemical spills. We see an increase of extinction of species and so forth and so on. We see the deforestation of many places. Uh, As as the technology develops, we see things as drastic as mountaintop removal. We see today hydrofracking. And there are Christians who go back and say, well, if we read Genesis 1 this way, what God has done was create this planet, this universe, for us. It's ours to own and we can do with as we please. In fact, God has given us this mandate to dominate, to subdue, and and have dominion in this mode.
0: If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Father Dan Haran. We're discussing his recent book, All God's Creatures, A Theology of Creation. And so if I'm following, even though we don't have a lot of scriptural warrant for what image of God means, Imago Dei means, the tradition has taken this and has developed an idea about it. And some of the hallmarks of that idea would be humanity is unique in creation because it has been given uniquely this Imago Dei. No other creature possesses it. And because of that, we have a unique set of faculties that connect us to God in a way that nothing else in creation is connected to. I want to make sure, first of all, I'm I'm tracking that correctly. And then I want, if I do do have that correctly, it seems like your book, particularly towards the end, and we'll get to this in a moment, is wanting to critique that philosophical notion of Imago Dei. Do I have all that correct? Yeah,
1: yeah. You're spot on. Thank you. You're a very good and generous (laughs) reader. No, that's exactly right. And you know, this this idea that there's a vacuum, in other words, we we have the tradition, the Christian tradition especially, but also the Jewish tradition of the Second Temple period and beyond. But I'm not an expert in that area, so I'm going to kind of refrain from commenting on it. But certainly in the early Christian centuries, we have already, you know, following the Jewish philosopher Philo, you get people, the early apologists and patristic writers, you get Augustine and so forth, and, and it develops, a pattern develops rather, that Because there's a vacuum of meaning around a term that gets appropriated pretty early on as significant, you know, the the assumption is reading, especially Genesis 1 in isolation, that, as you say, rightly, only human beings are imago Dei. Only human beings have been given this mandate, and therefore there's a radical break, what um, a, a British theologian, David Clow, would call a human separatist interpretation, that we are separate from the rest of creation. One way I, I joke about this sometimes when lecturing about this or, or talking to students about it is there was a program on the Discovery Channel some years ago. No, no, no. It was the History Channel, I believe. It was a series called Ancient Aliens. Are, have you heard of this before? <laughs> You're nodding your head. So, And I imagine our listeners have come across it. And on the one hand, it's a kind of a wacky thing. On the other hand, it's not that wacky uh, proposition, this idea that we did not, quote, evolve from, you know, the matter that was present on planet Earth like the rest of creation, but rather there's some kind of alien DNA or something or that we were placed here from without. And as that sounds on the one hand preposterous, and I would admit that it is, I'm certainly a believer in, in modern natural sciences. Nevertheless, that's essentially what the dominion model presupposes, that God makes this cosmos, makes this universe, makes the planet and everything on it and in it and beyond it. For us, and that we are then kind of placed after the fact in this unique role, and I make a, a point in the book, and, and you've already picked up on it in your in your astute language in describing this that uniqueness is in, is perhaps the problem, not distinctiveness, you know that we are indeed distinct as a species, as a community from other creatures, but as other creatures are distinct from one another, nevertheless, this emphasis, this kind of radical holding to a uniqueness creates a separatism that leads to really pragmatic and, and practical negative implications like pollution, extinction, global climate change, and, and and so many other things. And we should say we've been talking about this in a specifically theological
0: context, but if we just go to a secular realm and we look at the last 200 years under kind of global capitalism and the rise of, of kind of market economies and the kind of global trade that we have, there's a parallel to this in the secular world as well that has a unique place for humanity that subjects all of creation basically to our comfort and to our satisfaction. Is that a fair characterization?
1: It is. And and bringing it back to sort of the the eco-feminist philosophical and theological critiques of of the last, let's say, 25, 30 years, which have been really important, they point out that there are parallels between the way that humanity as a species relates and treats and sees the rest of creation and the way that we, it's sort of like an odd intra and odd extra sort of relationship or dynamic. What Leonardo Boff, the Brazilian theologian calls, you know, the tie between the cry of the earth and the cry of the poor, that those who are subdued, dominated, marginalized, oppressed within the human family, the way we other them, the way we control a certain sense of alterity and and create identity by opposition is also what we do with creation. And so it, it sort of scales up and scales down in this oppositional or hierarchical dualistic worldview that says that in order for me to have uniqueness identity meaning then there has to be an other over which I stand if you're just joining us this is things not seen I'm David Dalt our guest today is
0: father Dan Haran. we're discussing his recent book all God's creatures a theology of creation we'll be back in a moment Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Father Dan Haran, and we're discussing his recent book, All God's Creatures, A Theology of Creation. So a moment ago, we were talking about dominion as a model and some of the flaws in that, both theologically and practically. But you also present another model in your book, All God's Creatures, and that is the idea of stewardship. Now, if I'm reading this correctly, stewardship is presented, first of all, as a corrective in the tradition to dominion. So what are some of the distinctions that stewardship brings to the conversation? And then from there, let's start, as we did with dominionism, to start to think about what some of the flaws might.
1: Yeah, maybe just a a little nuance I might add to that. I think you're generally right in your summary. I would just say that all three of these models that I talk about in the book are concurrently present in the tradition. And some of them are, at various points in history, emphasized or de-emphasized. So stewardship is, for sure, perceived at least in the last century, as a corrective to the the emphasis of on dominion for the previous two millennia, basically. But it's always been present. And so an advocate for the stewardship model would say, in contrast to a dominion model that says God creates everything for us and we own it, those who embrace a stewardship approach will say, no, 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 this world is not quote unquote ours. God did not make this for us. Rather, we have, again, a unique role within creation as its keepers, its stewards, its gardeners, that there's a kind of deontological, a duty-based relationship to creation. The way that I sometimes like to talk about it is whereas the dominion model creates humanity as the lords of creation, the stewardship approach approaches humanity as the landlords of creation. As one version of English translation of, of the Psalms puts it, you know, God owns the planet. And, and therefore, with that kind of mindset, we have been entrusted with care for it. So the stewardship approach says, no, 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 let's read beyond Genesis 1. Let's take a look at the Genesis 2 account. And famously, you know, our listeners who are familiar with that text will recall after the creation of men and women, you get this other kind of divine discourse. It's not one of dominion and subduing but rather it's one of caretaking, cultivation, tilling the land, et cetera, et cetera. Also tied to this oftentimes is the seemingly unique or particular responsibility given to humanity to name the other creatures. So you see all this kind of happening, and what that does is provide a scriptural and theological foundation for people to say, I think we've got this wrong. And we see how wrong it is by the kind of disastrous consequences of climate change and pollution and extinction and and human health issues and so forth so we need to reorient ourselves to not think of ourselves as the lords of creation but but of the landlords and so it effectively installs us as a species as the kind of middle women and middle men between creation and god and so like a farmer who tends the
0: land if the farmer is not attentive to the land over time the land will be depleted of its nutrients and it will cease to be productive and so what a farmer should strive for at least in traditional modes of farming is a kind of balance you rotate your crops you make sure that your you make sure that your livestock are on a field one year so that they both eat the grass and then they also kind of leave behind some more nitrogen, <laughs> n- more, more nutrients <laughs> yeah. for others. Family show, um, and <laughs> the cycle is very much being attuned to these rhythms of the land, and that that is what I'm hearing you saying in these in these caretaker sort of models. One of the things that arises, though, as mastery and technology take over, particularly in the last, we could say, last hundred years, but particularly the last fifty years, is the rise not of rhythmic farming culture, but what we might call monoculture, yeah. where artificially we're putting back nutrients and we're not living in the balance, but instead we're getting every last inch of land productive and we're getting every last ounce of productivity out of that soil in a way that must be exhausting for creation, if I may say it that way.
1: Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And you know the image of Stuart is appealing, particularly to Christians, because it appears not only In in the Hebrew Bible, you know, we see it actually in in some of the the legal texts, the juridical texts of the Tanakh, we see it as an image in the prophets as well. You know, whether it's the Jubilee year and how that relates to lands being fallow or these sorts of things. But where it really kind of surfaces for Christians is in the parables of Jesus. I mean, he's talking constantly about stewards and what you're naming here evokes for me. The classical image of the fact that a steward isn't neutral. You have good stewards and you have bad stewards. And so, you know, exactly in the wake of a sort of uncritical acceptance by most Christians, I would say, of the dominion model that says we can do with what we please and and helped give rise, you know, it didn't cause the Industrial Revolution. It didn't cause a kind of anthropocentric philosophy around the Western Enlightenment. But it certainly helped along the way by providing another proof text. You know, now recognizing some of the consequences of that way of thinking and the language around it, advocates of the stewardship approach say, well, wait a minute, we've we've been bad stewards. We've misunderstood our vocation and we have made it about us. And actually, God has given us an instruction to be good stewards. And we can look to Jesus talking about the reward for the good stewards and so forth.
0: So a listener now might think we've solved the problem. So dominion and mastery was bad and we we have now a corrective but the corrective sometimes can be applied incorrectly to the bad stewardship model so the answer would simply to be good stewards, but, yeah, but you're yeah. you're going you're to want to push past that. And so, help us understand why simply being good stewards of creation is not
1: enough now. Yeah, and that's probably the that's the the sixty million dollar question for the book, you know, and why I why I wrote this, why why this is of interest to me, because I would say a significant majority of Christians, kind of your run of the mill Christians in the pew, your pastors, your theologians, church leaders, they're content with the. A ostensible correction of stewardship. let's be good stewards, that's what we have to work for. And so you see that ecumenically. You see that in the in the Roman Catholic tradition, you see this in, in a number of mainline Protestant traditions as well that you know if we don't limit ourselves to proof texting limited passages from Genesis 1, but rather try to have a more holistic approach to our vocation as God sees it in relationship to the rest of creation, then we are called to be good stewards. And on the one hand, that's not just a a Christian or theological claim. We see that as well in kind of the secular sphere. This is where people who are environmental advocates and people who are working for justice, you know, even kind of Greenpeace sort of folks, we can sign on. You don't have to be a believer to say, yeah, we need to be better stewards. Let me see if I'm hearing this as a subtext of what you're saying.
0: Stewardship is about management and management is about scarcity and scarce resources. So already there's a theology of lack, not a theology of abundance that's operative in a
1: stewardship model.
0: Is that a fair characterization?
1: I think it is. I think there's certainly, you know, economic lenses through which we can view this that fit very, very well. And that does seem to align. So I I think that's not a bad way to think about it. It is managerial. It really is. And that's one of the critiques that I raise pretty early on in the first part of the book, which is, you know, this managerial identity of humanity as steward is problematic for a number of reasons. And so, you know, just just to kind of reiterate the kind of punchline is that I don't think stewardship sufficiently reflects an adequate scriptural and Christian understanding of humanity's relationship to the rest of creation. That's my premise, you know, the kind of thesis of this this book. And so what's necessary then is to take another look at stewardship as a theological model, as as a kind of identity for our species in relationship to the rest of creation, and see how it's helpful and how it isn't. I say very clearly that it's, it is a vast improvement on a kind of dominion approach. However, there are a lot of things about the dominion approach that persist in the stewardship model that most people don't Critically engage, including many theologians. Now, there are some who do. And I think of somebody, I mentioned David Clow earlier. I think of Professor Elizabeth Johnson, uh, a sister of St. Joseph and a, and a great uh, Catholic theologian. There, there are people who are very cr- critical of the stewardship approach because it's not adequate for describing a couple things. One, what we've learned from the natural sciences about who we are and what the rest of creation is, it doesn't take adequately enough some. I would say significant scriptural passages that have been overlooked or de-emphasized that raise real questions about limiting ourselves to certain select verses in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 throughout the Hebrew Bible, the wisdom literature, the New Testament, and so forth. And so I I think there's a call here for us to say, wait, wait a minute, is stewardship the best approach?
0: And, And my position is, I don't think so. Well, and you've talked about Elizabeth Johnson, and she's certainly an important part of the through line of your arguments, and we'll talk a little bit more about her in a moment. But I'm also aware that at, at a point in the book, you you raise a critique of Claire Palmer, who says that even these words, steward and stewardship, they have a problematic history because they tie into a way of thinking about the world that is not just dominion over nature and dominion over wildness of nature, but also dominion over other human beings That gets tied into an idea that is largely referred to as colonialism. Yeah,
1: that's right. And and so so Claire Palmer's critique of of that language is is very, very important. But you just named something that's also significant about the methodology of my approach here, which is rooted in postcolonial criticism. And and here I'm very uh, indebted to the work of the late eco-philosopher Val Plumwood, who was from Australia and worked very closely in her philosophical work on the environment and and kind of human identity and so forth with aboriginal peoples in Australia, with the philosophical tradition, with post-colonial theory. And she's one who says, we recognize when we look at the reality of colonialization and the decolonial kind of move of the middle 20th century where places like Britain or France or, or Belgium are, re, are are stepping back, right? And she says, we can see a number of the, I'm going to use this theological word, sins, the evils, the effects of colonization. So you see, for instance, you know what it's done to the economic possibilities of a given community or now nation state. You see what it does in terms of cultural identity and formation, tribalism. One only has to think of, You know the dutch effects in rwanda for instance right and so she says but we also recognize that one of the issues with the whole colonial enterprise has been the stealing of natural resources and we see this in africa we see this in central and south america i spent some time a few years back in bolivia you see that today with the lithium extraction in the salt flats of that country and it leaves these countries devastated. And she says, so we're, we're used to talking about environmental consequences of the colonial enterprise. But she says what we haven't done adequately enough, but that we should, is recognize that our relationship to non-human creation is itself a form of colonization.
0: If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Father Dan Haran. We're discussing his recent book, All God's Creatures, A Theology of Creation. We'll be back in a moment. So for those of you that are longtime listeners to Things Not Seen, you may be aware that I do another show called The Francis Effect with my friend Dan Haran. He's a Franciscan priest. Every couple of weeks, he and I get together to bring you commentary on current events from a
1: perspective informed by our Catholic faith. Now, Dan, why should I be talking to you? Who are you? Who am I? I'm a Franciscan friar, a Roman Catholic priest, and a professor of theology here in Chicago, and. That's a good question. I have no idea why you should be talking with me, but if people are interested in what a conversation between you, the otherwise uh, respectable host of Things Not Seen, and me, the not-so-respectable Roman Catholic priest and theologian, I think they should tune in. Yeah, they should definitely tune in. So that's The Francis
0: Effect, and you can find it at francisfxpod.com. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. We're speaking today with Father Dan Horan, and we're discussing his recent book, All God's Creatures, A Theology of Creation. So we've been talking about some models of the way that human beings relate to the world in the Christian tradition. One of them is the dominion model. One is the stewardship model. We've talked about why those models have a certain appeal. We've also talked about some ways in which they're flawed. And so now I'd like to pivot and look at ways in which there are other resources that we can draw from. And in particular, let's start with the tradition out of which you draw your training, the Franciscan tradition. So what do St. Francis and the other thinkers in the Franciscan tradition begin to give us that offers an alternative to dominion or stewardship? Yeah,
1: I'd love to talk about that. If I can just step back just a little bit Mm -hmm. to set up how the Franciscan tradition kind of comes into this project. The book is in two parts, and you've kind of alluded to this already. The first part I call the rise and fall of stewardship. And that fall part is something I'm encouraging along with some other theological colleagues and interlocutors. And there are a number of issues that we've already started talking about and so many, many more that are problematic about stewardship. So the question then is... Well, then how do we think about ourselves in relationship to non-human creation? As I mentioned earlier in an earlier segment, the dominion model, the stewardship model, and now this third model exist concurrently. It's not like we're coming up with something new, but it's what I would call a minority tradition in that it's present, but the dominion approach has been in the majority for a long time. And certainly right now in 2018, I would say since, since 1967, when Lynn White Jr. wrote a pretty now famous or infamous, depending on how you look at it, short article critiquing the Christian tradition for its role in in environmental degradation. And so since then, that's kind of like a turning point theologically. Stewardship has gained prominence. It's the majority tradition. But there's always been this minority tradition that has been alternatively referred to as the kinship model or the community of creation model. And so a lot of credit goes to, uh, professor Elizabeth Johnson, uh, for a short little book that she wrote. It was actually a lecture that she gave in at St. Mary's college in Notre Dame, uh, in the early nineties, where she talks about, again, critiquing the stewardship model because it doesn't adequately reflect a couple of things. One is that we are creation too. <laughs> How quick we forget that, you know, we jump to the kind of deontological focus of Genesis 2 about giving us this kind of role of as gardener or steward and that sort of thing, caretaker. But we skip over the opening of Genesis 2, which says that human beings, like all creatures, are made ha'adama in Hebrew, from the earth. And so natural sciences has confirmed that. We're made of oxygen and nitrogen and carbon and so forth. And so on a kind of cosmic level, we share our, our most fundamental elemental composition with everything else that exists. And so there goes that ancient alien's hypothesis. We're not unique in that regard. We evolved as a species as everything else did in creation. So kinship, then, that term itself refers to the fact that we're part of a family of creation, which is deeply theological. There's one creator we profess, and and the creeds that we profess say that God is the creator of heaven and earth, which is to say everything that exists comes from God. We're not not creation as we've been thinking of ourselves. The community of creation is is a term that's been more recently applied because of some of the tensions that exist in in Jesus's own discourses about kinship, you know, that that he kind of prioritizes a discipleship over a kinship. You know, he talks at various points about who is my mother, who are my brothers, et cetera, et cetera. And so, you know, because it's more capacious, this notion of a community of creation. But I think it's OK to think of it either as family or community, we're well, part of it. There's great resource
0: in that in the the scripture passage where Jesus says, you know, I've called you my students, but now I call you friends. Yeah, there's that movement towards familiarity, and if I can use the language of your tradition, there's a filial notion there, a brotherhood notion there. So in your book, one of the things that you make is a distinction between the ecological viewpoint and the environmental viewpoint in thinking about humanity's relationship to creation. And so the environmental viewpoint basically says humanity is here and we are in an environment kind of like that's our background. Ecology, as you're mentioning right now, is much more holistic. We are interrelated with our background. It's in us and
1: we're in it. Yeah, that's exactly right. And and the emphasis actually goes back to the Greek origins of ecology. And, and there's a play here on this, too. So ecologos means you know the way we talk about our home. You know, so e- the eco part comes from oikos in Greek, not to be confused with the Dan and yogurt oikos. You know, your household yogurt. You have ekonomi, which is how we order or the law of our household. So we talk about, you know, oftentimes financially, there's a law, there are rules in place about how we order. You know, that dimension of our lives. So ecology, the logic or the way we think about, talk about, describe our context is open for further you know fide's corns intellectum further greater understanding clarification environment is deeply problematic you know we talk about going out into the environment well that that again slips back into a dominion sort of purview that we say oh well this is just a nice background as you said rightly to our human enterprise, that that the rest of this stuff doesn't have standing in and of itself. It only exists in a utilitarian relationship to us. What do I get out of it? And that God created it as a backdrop for, for human salvation, essentially.
0: Well, and one of the problems, though, is that there is no wildness that people in the West can really find. So you and I, we live in a city. And where do we go for wildness? Well, we have parks, but the parks are maintained. We have green space, but the green space is mowed and manicured and is is maintained. We may choose to go out into the country, but if we go out into the country, we don't really encounter wildness. What we encounter is agribusiness. We encounter even the land there, the wildness is tamed. So it's hard for us even to conceive of nature in itself. Nature is already subdued
1: to us everywhere that we look. Sort of, sort of. So this is where I would push back. I think your description is 100% on target with the way a lot of people, especially a lot of Christians, would view us and the rest of creation. What I would push back and say is, you know, to borrow from the children's book title, where the wild things are. They're here in the studio. We are the wild things as well. And so it's true, while while this notion of wilderness or sort of untamed creation, for lack of a better phrase, is what most people think of with quote unquote nature, we are nature too, we are creation too. And so one of the things I'm trying to encourage us to think about is the fact that we are never separated from the rest of creation. One example I use, you know, often I lecture about theology of creation and I'll pause and I'll say, you know, and this usually throws people off, that how many people photosynthesized their breakfast this morning? How, ma- how many people grew the blue jeans they're wearing from their body? And and, and even that should, you know, it, it shocks you into realizing how interdependent and interrelated we are. Again, that kinship, that community, rea- that the reality that exists, but even trees don't photosynthesize on their own, they rely on the UV energy of the sun, they rely on the nitrogen and and the water and the ground, the carbon dioxide that we and other creatures exhale. And so there's always already a dynamic, kind of organic, interrelated reality. And so us sitting here, even in a, you know, in a modern building with our high-tech microphones and headsets and everything and computers, we are still part of this world. And I think we trick ourselves into thinking we're not, which unwittingly leads a lot of people who would in theory embrace stewardship. Oh yeah, I recycle. Oh yeah, I I compost, which those are good things. I'm not mocking them. But, you know, actually I think most of us operate day in and day out with a radical anthropocentric worldview, where really all that matters is us and we treat everything else that exists in the universe and in our local spheres and so forth as either beneficial to us or problematic. This is one of the great insights of the patron
0: of your order, St. Francis. So prior to St. Francis, as I read the tradition, and you know a lot more about this than I do, the tradition had been largely kind of caught up in Greek philosophical ideas and trying to think about how to intellectualize their way to God. One of the things that Francis and his companion Claire really gave to us was a return to the body, So a renewed emphasis on the body of Christ, the the physical aspects of the passion that helped with our salvation, all of that is important. But the other thing that Francis gave to us was exactly what you're saying, this notion of being a part of the community of creation. And when we look at that, we can see a through line from what Francis gave us to a recent encyclical by Pope Francis, Laudato Si. So help us to understand some of the parallels between these ancient re invigorations of the question of being part of the world with what's going
1: on now in this 21st century conversation in this encyclical. Yeah. So it's interesting. I, um, you know, Francis, St. Francis is, is known for his love of animals. Every October 4th, all these churches bless the animals and you bring your bunnies and your dogs and everything. And that's fine. But one of the problems around the kind of popular understanding of St. Francis of Assisi and the Franciscan tradition is an effect of what I call the birdbath industrial complex, which is that everybody reduces Francis to this kind of roaming troubadour, romantic, naive, you know, admirable and lovable, but nevertheless disconnected pie in the sky, Pollyannish sort of figure. And he was anything but that. And so one of the things I do in in you know, and talking about resources within the Franciscan tradition, and I have to admit, it does seem kind of stereotypical. I remember when talking with people on, about working on this book, and they they said, "Oh, a Franciscan working on a book of creation? Surprise, surprise." Nevertheless, my approach is is somewhat—it's a critical resource mon. It's a critical going back to the sources and bringing it forward, and it's not simply kumbaya, tree hugging kind of uh, interpretations of a Francis of Assisi that never existed. Francis of Assisi was somebody who, though not formally educated in the theological tradition, was deeply situated within the biblical narrative. And so texts that oftentimes get kind of undervalued or overlooked were things that had informed his imagination, what David Tracy would call his analogical, his Catholic imagination. And so he composed this Canticle of the Creatures in which he does have a very kind of filial, a very familial description of his place in relationship to other creatures, calling them sister and brother and so forth. And he does this not just in the Canticle, but in lots of uh, the early writings and early remembrances of him. That, like I said, has been reduced to a caricature, to a cartoon. But what it sets in motion is the opportunity for the theologians and philosophers who live his way of life as Franciscans that come after him to develop that further. And so he provides kind of, I would call, in the, in the words of Professor Bernie McGinn at, at the University of Chicago, he, he talks about a vernacular theology. You have scholastic theology, you know, you have patristic theology, you have monastic theology, but, but this is a vernacular theology that arises from lived experience, from theological reflection, from praxis, and from scripture. Our guest today is Father Dan Haran. We're
0: discussing his recent book, All God's Creatures, A Theology of Creation. We'll be back in a moment. Hey folks, this is David. Thank you for listening and thank you for supporting the work that I do. As you're probably aware, in addition to this show, I help produce a number of other programs about culture and faith. One of them is the Commonweal podcast, produced by my friends over at Commonweal Magazine. For almost a century now, Commonweal has staked a claim for Catholic principles and perspectives in American life and for lay people's voices within the church. Their podcast features a wide spectrum of voices discussing art, politics, religion, and civil society. Each episode offers three or four segments that amplify the pages of the print magazine and move into new frontiers. I've been a reader of Commonweal for a long time, and I'm thrilled to share this new podcast with you, whether you're a long-time reader yourself or just discovering it for the first time. You can find the Commonweal podcast on Spotify, Google Play, and Apple Podcasts, as well as on their website, commonwealmagazine.org slash podcast. That's commonwealmagazine.org slash podcast. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Daltz. Our guest today is Father Dan Haran. We're discussing his recent book, All God's Creatures: A Theology of Creation. You say at one point that we cannot merely tweak the received theological models of Dominionism and stewardship, but instead we must think of a new model. And the name that you give to this is a little unwieldy. It's post-colonial Franciscan Theology of Creation. And we've been talking about creation. I think we've got we have a handle on what that is but let's kind of walk through each of those terms. So post-colonial, what does that mean specifically for you in this project?
1: So in this project, that that's a reference to a, a hermeneutic, a way of interpreting the world of literature. Post-post-colonial theory arises initially from critical studies that on the one hand approach non kind of western, uh, non sort of hegemonic literature, underrepresented literature, which which I have to qualify, even as I'm saying this, this is not adequately representing, you know, the, the the whole field of postcolonial theory. So it's
0: a it's a major body of criticism that looks at what we have inherited. And if if I can give a phrase, the dead white guy
1: canon. And yeah, that's certainly part of it because it's it's you know, where a lot of postcolonial theory develops is in critical literature studies. So that's definitely a big part of it. But also, it gets uh, embraced as a hermeneutic, as a mode of interpretation and a form of criticism in other fields. So, I'd mentioned Val Plumwood earlier and, and her background as an eco feminist philosopher. It gets uh, engaged with in terms of theology as well when we think of these kind of hegemonic or kind of homogenized ways of, of seeing and, and the, the kind of dead white guy canon applies not only to kind of quote-unquote classic literature, but applies to our theological principles and worldviews as well. So it, it helps us to
0: interrogate even what questions are showing up to be answered. Is that a fair characterization?
1: It is, and it's rooted, I mean, it, there's, there's a lot of actual criticism of post-colonial criticism these days as well, and, and we don't really have time and to get into that. But, you know, one of the things that undergirds the approach is a philosophical movement called deconstruction, which is a, a post-structuralist philosophy tied to the work of the late French philosopher Jacques Derrida. I should say Algerian philosopher but who resided in France. And so what, you know, one of the things there is people confuse, they hear the word deconstruction and they think of destruction, that you're trying to tear everything down. And one of the main principles that Derrida, you know, uh, advances is this idea that deconstruction is is not about really doing anything. To put it very simplistically, it's about uncovering that System or structure or falling apartness that's already present in whatever idea or reality we're talking about, so it's an uncovering we might say it's an unveiling of a sort, and this postcolonial application of a deconstructive mode is to say whether we're looking at literature, whether we're looking at philosophy, whether we're looking at you know the effects of globalization economically, capitally, and so forth, or if we're looking theologically, what is already always being undone? That isn't acknowledged that's being masked over. If the church
0: or if human beings begin to enact the vision that you articulate in this book,
1: how do things change? What does it look like practically? That's that's another $60 million question. It begins first of all by saying I, I always say that it begins with an acknowledgement that words function and that words have actual practical implications. One of the deficits I see with the stewardship approach, as well-meaning as it is, as much as an improvement as it is over dominion, nevertheless, we slip back into this human exceptionalism, this kind of uniqueness and apartness and anthropocentrism as Pope Francis and others would call it. And so that has practical consequences. At the end of the day, it's what's most important is still us. This move then to act not as stewards but as members of the same family in a spirit of pietas, this this kind of virtue of caring for creation because it cares for us and that we are part of creation too, I think has a number of different practical implications. And, and I'm not – and I don't in this book. I make it very clear at the end. I, I talk about a couple in a kind of heuristic way, a couple of ethical – possibilities where environmental ethicists might take some of this and run. And that's not really my area. Um, so I, I don't, I don't, I always hesitate to give people a list of these are the eight things you need to do or something like that. That's, that's less, I don't think we we're really quite there yet. It begins with, you know, again, these paradigm shifts that are necessary. We, we got to stop thinking. And, you know, again, back to this notion of anthropocentric privilege in the community of creation it's It's the same thing we see with with racial privilege, right white privilege in the United States context, for instance, where until people change their worldview and don't hold, for instance, white male experience as normative against which everything else is judged or valued, then you can't actually enact any kind of justice. So, you know, civil rights leaders have talked about this, you know, Brown versus Board of Education, the civil rights bills, et cetera, et cetera. This is all great on paper, but it doesn't mean anything until that white privilege is grappled with. Similarly, I'm, I'm suggesting the same sort of thing here. One thing, one example, I see it playing out practically in, in how do you embrace this language change is something that I tell people all the time is a practical thing you can do with your family at home every day or every week which is when you have a grace before meal, how about thanking not only God for the gifts that we've received, but thank God for the life that makes it possible. You know, the vegetables that died so that you can live for, you know, the lettuce that's given its life for you, for the, the the animals who have died to provide the meat that you're eating. It's sometimes a shock to people to hear that Francis of Assisi was 100% not a vegetarian. He ate meat and and he ate whatever was placed before him. But I think he had a sense of, his relationship to creation in a sense of gratitude, not only to God, but certainly first and foremost to God, but to the rest of creation for his life and for the sacrifice of their lives in a way analogous to what a lot of Aboriginal folks who have been um, overlooked or suppressed or oppressed over the centuries and millennia have. And one thinks on this continent of Native Americans or First Nations people who you know, thank the creature that they're about to consume as a community for the life that it has given so they might live. So that's a notion perhaps of pietas, a notion of discursive change uh, that allows us to shift our lenses to recognize that, you know, what I'm not arguing for in Francis of Assisi and the Catholic Church and Christianity, none none of these are arguing for, you know, a kind of Jainism where everything is equally valuable. It's not that at all. But I think there are practical ways we can start thinking differently. And once our theological and faith imaginary shifts, then I think we'll start approaching some of these ethical concerns we have about the treatment of other creatures, about farming, about industry, about technology in in new ways that's grounded uh, in this kind of, I would call it, systematic theological bedrock of a theology of creation. Well, Father Dan
0: Horan, I'm just going to say again what I said at the top of the show, and that is that this book just knocked my socks off because from its first pages to the end, it is a coherent instruction in how to think about these issues in the Christian tradition. It equips you to understand the development of these ideas. And it really gives us a glimpse of a vision of what might come if we begin to use the resources that we already have in our tradition in a new way. I just want to thank you, first of all, for taking the time to speak to us, but also for the effort of putting together such a masterful book. It's really my pleasure. Thank you, David. We've been speaking today with Father Dan Harran. He's a Franciscan friar of Holy Name Province in New York, and he's an assistant professor of systematic theology and spirituality at Catholic Theological Union here in Chicago. He's the author of 12 books, and today we've been discussing his most recent one, All God's Creatures, A Theology of Creation. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park, here on the south side of Chicago. Our studios have a home courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. Neither Zygon nor LSTC is responsible for the content of this program. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keija. Our show was made possible in part through the generosity of our supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's patreo ncom Not Seen notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at notseenradio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and to find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio.